Good evening. I trust that you're having a worshipful uh, Sunday, uh, Lord's Day. And in that spirit, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Paul. to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. But before we read this passage of Scripture, please join me in prayer at this moment. Father, peel back our eyes and rip open our chests and minds and empower us to see and live, to know and cherish your magnificent grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name we pray, amen. This is God's very own word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness And loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of words done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These these things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Reinventing yourself doesn't mean taking baby steps to become a slightly different person. It means diving into a new and improved version of yourself head first. Truly reinventing yourself, whether you want to change your career, your outlook, or the way you view your relationships, is hard work but it pays off tenfold. If you want to reinvent yourself, you have to make a game plan, address your flaws, and never stop learning. This is how an article titled Reinvent Yourself begins. At one time or another, 
We have all experienced a deep longing to possess the power to hit the proverbial reset button on our lives. Some of us may have desired this as a result of being raised in poverty or being raised in in an abusive and spiritually broken home. Or some of us may have engaged in this type of thinking when we're going through a hurtful and overwhelming crisis. And some of us have even thought of another chance in life as a result of some wrong or evil, either committed by us or done to us. There are many articles like the one I cited that offer the how-tos to acquire the ability to reset the button on our lives. However, in this passage, we can discover how God's grace and His grace alone is the only way to bring about this transformation in our lives by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This evening, I will attempt to highlight three important truths of this passage. First, we all share a common problem. We are dead without God's grace. Second, God delivers us from this death through a new birth in order to make us heirs of his grace. And lastly, we are specifically born to be godly heirs as a fruit of this new birth. To our first point, our common problems. Our lives without God's grace are dead. This particular passage is part of a letter which was written by Paul and originally addressed to Titus, who was a young pastor. Apparently, Paul had left him in charge to carry out unfinished church business in Crete, which, is, which was an island in the Mediterranean. In addition, the letter itself functions as an instruction manual for pastors who are serving in a church. And in this particular chapter, Paul repeats the theme of the relationship between gospel faith and gospel living. He begins by reminding them of their responsibilities as recipients of God's grace. In the first place, however, the Apostle Paul brings to our attention a common problem we all share. He does this by giving us a list. Apparently, this list is not meant to be exhaustive in its scope, but it is representative of how our lives look like before coming to faith and repentance in Christ. So please, take a look with me at verse 3 of this passage. For it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Particular biblical scholar has noticed that in this verse has three parts which flows in a threefold manner. It flows from thought to emotions to actions. The first part highlights our spiritual ignorance apart from God's grace as described by the words foolish, disobedient, 
and led astray. The second part of this verse stresses that apart from God's grace, we are slaves to two deadly instincts, passions and pleasures. And the third part points us to our behavior and our relationships with one another apart from God's grace, malice and envy, leading to being hated by others and hating one another. I remember a particular night in Philadelphia a few years ago after I came home from work. And at that time, we had a dog. She was born at home, actually, and she was half Doberman and half German Shepherd. And as the guard dog as she was, her favorite place of the house while we were awake was the front door. She would lie on her back at the front door. So when anyone would come too close to our door, her hair would raise, right? And she would begin to belt out these intimidating barks. So on this particular night, she reacted this way. And we heard a loud thump against our front door and window. So I made my way to the front door, opened it, and noticed that and to spare you the gross details, the, the, I, I noticed the evidence of a mischievous deed done by the kids of my neighborhood. And my first reaction was, of course, anger, and I was uh, just full of vengeful indignation. But I immediately remembered that I had done the same hateful thing when I was a y- younger Perhaps you too may have done more than you can count, something similar or even regretfully worse. In another passage, Paul uses very similar language to describe our true nature apart from God's grace in this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Of course, the death that is described in this passage refers to our spiritual death. In other words, this is our true nature. This is the true reality of our human fallenness, of our human condition. This is who we are apart from God's unmerited favor. As a result, this passage says that we deserve his wrath. And Paul goes on to expand on this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. And again, notice, notice the language of this passage. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." Therefore, all of these passages taken together, we can see that just as a crime scene investigator, God surveys the entire field of our lives. 
And what he sees from his vantage point as he looks down from heavens and what he observes are dead hearts. He sees the darkness of our spiritual ignorance. He sees the darkness of our deadly impulses of our hearts. And he sees the darkness of our hatred. He accurately and unequivocally sees our true nature apart from his holy and saving grace. Although we may differ in degree concerning our actual thoughts, desires, and behavior, we all share this one common problem. We are all spiritually dead. If you have not come to Christ, and someone here has not come to Christ as of yet, in faith and repentance, your souls are dead to God. Your minds are dead to God. Your emotions are dead to God. And your wills are dead to God, as evidence in our actions, as described by these passages of Scripture. However, we thank and praise our God this evening for his saving grace. We who have come to recognize this and believe in Christ can say like Paul, that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So our second main point, the only solution to this common problem is to be born, to be born heirs by God's grace. This naturally leads us back to Titus chapter 3. Return with me and notice that what verses 4 and 7 say. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In these verses, we come to learn that the only solution to spiritual death is the appearance of God's saving grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Paul uses a similar expression in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, which states that, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If we were to plug this verse into Titus 3, 4, we see that God's saving grace can safely be defined as his goodness and loving kindness to save us. At this time, I'd like to take the opportunity to provide an overview of exactly how we are born to be heirs by God's grace. In other words, how does God deliver us from death through birth? It is imperative to point out to you that there is a, a, as it were, threefold appearance by God. In other words, it reveals the triune nature of God. The Trinity, the one being in three distinct persons. He is completely involved in saving us. 
we're going to look at some other passages to help us see this truth. In the opening chapter of this letter, Titus chapter 1, verse 4. Titus 1, 4. Notice that grace comes from both God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In addition, it, we can find an additional reference to the second person of the Trinity in Hebrews 9.26 to find out, have a better understanding of this appearance of God's grace. It states in Hebrews 9.26 the following, But as it is, he has appeared referring to Christ, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, let's not remain here, but try to get a better understanding by what is meant by Jesus appearing once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself by jumping back to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Titus 2 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So now we can summarize the appearance of God's grace in this way. The New Testament teaches that God, God the Father initiates our salvation by sending his Son to die for our sins. In turn, Christ's death on the cross was an act of goodness and loving kindness, or an act of his grace for us. But there is more grace that comes. In addition, God's grace makes its appearance based on Jesus' death on the cross through the presence of the Holy Spirit, who brings about the new birth in us. This is what Titus 3, verses 5 to 6 is referring to. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. As one writer describes it, the picture here of the Holy Spirit is being, of him being poured richly on us, indicates a flood as it were, that comes to us as the outworking of God's mercy. Do you know what the beautiful thing about this is? God comes down to us in a definitive search and rescue mission in the persons of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Because of this appearance of God's grace, he freely gives us new minds, new hearts, and new wills. In short, he gives us a new and spiritually alive nature. And he cannot fail in making us heirs of his grace because this is an intrinsically saving act that only he can do. If this were not so, this search and rescue mission by God will be self-defeating. 
And at this point, someone, someone may have an objection. Some people may object here because I have mentioned that he gives us new wills. Some may say, well, what is God doing messing with our wills? That's an area, that's a domain that he, he shouldn't really belong to. Do we not have the freedom to choose to believe or not? Some object to God's saving grace because it appears to violate our freedom of the will. If God is involved in giving us a new will, doesn't he compromise his love? Doesn't this compromise the authenticity of my love in response to him? Some may say, well, if I'm truly to respond in love, he needs to respect my will. And I sympathize, I sympathize with this way of thinking. Because I, I, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I, I've worn the sleeves of that t-shirt. But you know, at stake is our understanding of God's love. At stake is our understanding of God's love. In God's word, his love is never linked with or or defined in terms of our willingness or lack thereof to respond to his grace. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 8. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. And this is what Paul writes. And hope... That's not put us to shame, speaking about the hope we have in Christ, the hope we have in the gospel of God's grace. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is interesting because in Titus chapter 3, it uses basically the same verb. Pouring out here. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, notice, who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You see, in in the first chapter of Romans, Paul calls us God-haters. We are God-haters by nature. We're not lovers of God, you see. And in the scriptures, 
God's saving love is never, is never determined, is never defined, and is never linked with human will. As we can see in these passages, it's always described in this manner. God is loving God-haters. God is is loving God-haters. God is loving the unlovable. It is always described in these terms. God's love is always described in these terms. He is loving the unlovable. He is loving the rejectable. You see? Because by nature, through God's holy eyes, what he sees is utter darkness. The Reformed, and we we see this in, in Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared. This is the way we should understand God's love. Not centered around human freedom. And I will concede, yes, there's some mysteries concerning God's sovereignty and human freedom. But I would not concede that we should start defining divine love through human will or freedom of the human will. The Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck puts it in this way. This grace is inexorably and insuperably has its way with the human will. What God is doing is he, we, we are being enamored by God. We are being enamored by God. He goes on to say, it is not rejected by any heart, however hard. For God, by grace, takes away the heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh in its place. No, he does not force the human will. He's not, he does not violate the human will. No, he converts us into lovers, and we fall in love with him. That's what occurs. We are born to be heirs by his grace and mercy. This is a spiritual birth that is utterly irreversible. Just as we cannot return to our mother's womb, we cannot undo this spiritual birth. It is a supernatural act of God based on his promise where God can say through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is how Paul opens up this letter in chapter 1 in Titus, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness 
in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. You see that this good news is preached to different people in all nations. And and one reason why the spiritual birth is irreversible is that God does not have the capacity to lie. He has promised this new birth to those he had chosen from all eternity. And what we read in this letter to Titus and experience in the new birth is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel mentioned in chapter 36 verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees And be careful to keep my laws. Our last and third main point. By way of application, we're born to be godly as the fruit of God's grace. We're born to be godly as the fruit of God's grace. So as you may be able to notice, this passage from Ezekiel leads us back to Titus chapter 3 for our third thought. How does the new birth affect us today? What application does it have for us as we live out the truth of the new nature we now have? We have been spiritually born to become not just heirs of salvation, but godly heirs of salvation. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And this is what Paul is getting at in verses 1 and 8 in Titus 3. If you would return there with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And this is important. He follows it up again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There is a natural flow that results from our new birth. We receive a new heart and the Holy Spirit from God in order to lead and dedicate ourselves to doing what is good. As a result of the new birth, we are able to know, please, and have a passion and love for God. However, Paul needs to remind us of this fact because he has mentioned in chapter 2, we are waiting for the complete and final fruition of our salvation when grace will appear in all its fullness and splendor at the return of Christ. Perhaps you could identify with me. I spend a lot of time thinking, Lord, (laughs) I'm back. I want to experience to live in our newly resurrected bodies and to experience what it is to be fully, fully free from the presence of sin 
and living that out through that new body. But in the meantime, he reminds us to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. As I started the sermon by citing the article, Reinvent Yourself, I, it mentioned that if you want to reinvent yourself, you have to make a great plan, address your flaws, and never stop learning. I'm here to share with you the good news that God has already made that game plan before time began. And he has dealt with your deadly flaws and saved you from his wrath by the appearance of his grace in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he reminds us to never stop learning about his holy and saving grace. His grace is instructive. I think in a moment of self-disclosure, at one point or another in my Christian walk, I have to admit, I have to admit that I have succumbed to seductive trappings of moralism in my life as a Christian. That is to say, trying to live the good life apart from God's grace. But Paul never attempts to divorce God's grace from the moral imperatives. Let's return to chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. And the word training there is, is in the Greek, is where we get uh, the family of words uh, that include pedagogy or pedagogue. So it has an instructive aspect to this. Training us to renounce ungodliness. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. For, it, it, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly pl- passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The Apostle Paul never divorces the moral imperatives from God's grace. To do so is to be a moralist. God's grace serves as our daily instructor for godly living. He invites you today, he invites me to believe in the good news of his grace for you. Confess your sins and repent of them to receive his grace by faith. I would like to leave you with this final thought. It is an excerpt of of an article I came across uh, about two years ago, and the, the writer mentions, and I, I quote here, when the Lord Jesus rebuked the unbelieving generation to whom he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, he said, we play the flute for you, and you did not dance. The sweet melody of the gospel fell on deaf ears and dead hearts. Those in the Lord's audience, quote-unquote, freely, freely chose not to believe. It was a choice that all spiritually dead people make. Dead men can't dance. 
They don't want to dance to the joyous music of the gospel. They hate it. Only when God graciously makes us alive are we able to hear the glorious gospel symphony. We can't keep from dancing. We don't want to stop. Every believer sings with King David in Psalm 30, verses 11 to 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And the Lord's people say, Amen. Amen.